Here's the third step of Lewis's answer to the problem of evil. The first step is philosophy, the problem of pain. The second step is narrative, but fictional narrative. That's deeper because our stories are not philosophies, they're narratives. Our lives are narratives. The Bible is narrative. It's interrupted by some philosophy, the wisdom literature, the epistles, but they interpret the story. So the story is primary. But a true story is even more instructive than a fictional one. And now we have the true story. Lewis's own diary kept uh, on the occasion of the death of his wife. This is the best book I know to give to the grieving. I see eight problems. Let's see how he deals with each one. The first and most obvious problem is loneliness. We both knew this. I had my miseries, not hers. She had hers, not mine. We were setting out on different roads. This cold truth, this terrible traffic regulation, you madam to the right, you sir to the left, is just the beginning of the separation, which is death itself. She used to quote, alone into the alone. She said it felt like that. And how improbable that it should be otherwise. Time and space and the body were the very things that brought us together. The telephone wires by which we communicated. Cut one off or cut both off, either way mustn't the conversation stop. But that's intolerable that it should stop. Love doesn't ever stop. His solution to the problem of loneliness is to realize that death is not the end of marriage but a part of it. Then one or the other dies, and we think of this as love cut short, like a dance stopped in mid-career, or a flower with its head snapped off, something truncated and lacking its due shape. I wonder if, as I can't help suspecting, the dead also feel the pains of separation. Then for both lovers, and for all pairs of lovers, without exception, bereavement is an integral part of our experience of love. It follows marriage as naturally as marriage courtship follows summer is not a truncation of the process but one of its phases not, not the interruption of the dance but the next alright so life is a dance what is its theme how, how can the tragic movement teach the same theme we are taken out of ourselves that's the theme by the loved one while she is here. Then comes the tragic figure of the dance in which we must learn to be still taken out of ourselves though the bodily presence is withdrawn. To love the very her and not fall back to loving our past or our memory or our sorrow or our relief from sorrow or even our own love. You don't love love, you love the beloved. You don't have faith in faith, you have faith in God. What we want is to live our marriage faithfully through all the phases. If it hurts, and it certainly will, we will accept the pains as a necessary part of that phase. We will not escape them at the price of desertion or divorce. Many of the saints say they accept the sufferings that God brings them, not out of a spirit of stoical resignation, but because this brings them closer to Christ whom they love. They'd rather be on the cross with him than off the cross without him. Because on the cross you get Christ plus pain 
and off the cross you'll get neither Christ nor pain and they'll say I want pain because it's part of him something like that is Lewis's answer to the pains of bereavement because bereavement in a sense is presence yeah it's absence of the deceased but it's the presence of the absence of the deceased your tears are shaped like her so they're a kind of presence in the very absence a second problem you see these are not intellectual problems these are very personal problems very closely connected with the loneliness of death is the finality of death he says it is hard to have patience with people who say things like death doesn't matter or there is no death there is death and whatever is matters and whatever happens has consequences and it and they are irrevocable and irreversible you might as well say birth doesn't matter I look up at the night sky here's a haunting image is anything more certain than that in all those vast times and spaces if I were allowed to search them I would never find her face her voice her touch she died she is dead is the word so difficult for us to learn and the answer is yes it is very difficult for us to learn friend quotes to me do not mourn like those who have no hope it astonishes me the way we are invited to apply to ourselves words so obviously addressed to our betters what St. Paul says comforts only those who love God better than the dead and the dead better than themselves if a mother is mourning not for what she has lost but for what her dead child has lost it is a comfort to believe that the child has not lost the end for which it was created and it is a comfort to believe that she herself in losing her chief or only natural happiness has not lost a greater thing that she may still hope to glorify God and enjoy him forever a comfort to the God aimed eternal spirit within her but not to her motherhood the specifically maternal happiness must be written off forever never in any place or time will she have her son on her knees finality how do you deal with that by denying it not by denying death but by denying its finality here is I think the profoundest argument for immortality she has died and she's and Lewis thinks if she is not now then she never was I mistook a cloud of atoms for a person if there is no immortality then there aren't any persons and there never were death only reveals the vacuity that was always there what we call the living are simply those who have not yet been unmasked we're all equally bankrupt some of us not yet declared <laughs> but this must be nonsense vacuity revealed to whom bankruptcy declared to whom to other boxes of fireworks or clouds of atoms I can't believe that one set of physical events could be simply a mistake about other sets of physical events. When you 
instinctively understand that the presence of a person is different than the presence of an object. That persons are not there, they're here. Then you realize that a person is immortal. That's a, an either you see it or you don't argument. That's like my favorite argument for the existence of God. There is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, therefore there must be a God. You either see that or you don't. Here's a third problem. It's the universality of grief. Grief is not partial. If the grief is for somebody that you loved at the center of your life, then that's not a little piece, even of you, that has died. Everything has died. He says, the act of living now is different all through. Her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Remarkable image. Why is that? Somebody that you don't love deeply dies, they're important to you. A fairly close friend, a revered master. Uh, a piece, a large piece has fallen out of your life, but the rest is still there. When your spouse dies, it's different. It's like a piece of you has died. Aristotle said, friends are one soul and two bodies. He meant that as a metaphor. It's not literally true, but it's more than a metaphor. You feel as if half your soul has died. Now, let's explore that mystery for a moment. Out there in the objective physical world, your spouse's heart stops beating. Immediately after that, inside your consciousness, your spiritual world, a revolution happens. You feel as if only half of you is now alive. What's the causal connection between the cause and the effect? How could an event out there have repercussions in here? That's like saying a home run hit at Fenway Park will produce the winning score on the gridiron at Notre Dame. It must be that the categories are wrong that the out there is already in here, or else the in here is already out there. It must be that my heart is not just an organ in my chest and not just a feeling in my psyche. It must be who I give myself to. And if I give a big piece of myself to her and she dies, then literally a big piece of me has died. And that's comforting because that means I can share even her death. If what you want is not comfort but intimacy and your spouse dies and you wish you could die together instead of having to endure this loneliness to realize that in a sense you did die together. At least that's a partial comfort. How did Lewis overcome this universal gloom, this sky effect? Her absence makes everything feel empty by realizing that its cause was, well, let me just read the section. Towards the end, he said, these notes have been about myself, and then about her, and then about God in that order. Exactly the order that they, not, they ought not to have been. And I see that I have nowhere fallen into that mode of thinking about either her or God, which we call praise. That would have been best for me. 
praise is the mode of love that always has some joy in it. Praise in due order of God as the giver, of her as the gift. Don't we, in praise, somehow enjoy what we praise, however far we are from it? By praising, I can still in some way enjoy her, and already in some degree enjoy him. A very surprising reaction to the deepest bloom, praise. Here's another problem, egotism. Number four, even our grief is egotistic. He tries after her death to think more about her, to overcome his self-centeredness. It's extremely hard. He says, I must think more about her and less about myself. Oh yes, that sounds very well, but there's a snag. I'm thinking about her nearly always. Thinking of the facts about her, real words, real looks, real laughs, real actions of hers. But it is my mind that selects them and groups them. Already today, less than a month after her death, I can feel the slow, insidious beginning of a process that will make the her I think of into a more and more imaginary woman. Founded on fact, no doubt, I shall put in nothing fictitious, or hope I won't, but won't the composition inevitably become more and more my own? The reality is no longer there to check me, to pull me up short, as she so often did, so unexpectedly, by being so thoroughly herself and not me. Like Lewis, his wife Joy was kind of cantankerous and in your face and not sweet and nice and polite. She was a very good woman, but people said, why does Lewis love her? She's calling him a fool all the time and arguing with him and whatnot. He loved it. The most precious gift that marriage gave me was this constant impact of something very close and intimate, yet at the same time other, resistant, in a word, real. Is all that work to be undone? Is what I shall still call her now going to sink back into being not much more than one of my old bachelor pipe dreams? Oh, my dear, my dear, come back for one moment and drive that miserable phantom away. Today I met a man I haven't seen for ten years. All that time I thought I was remembering him well, how he looked and spoke and that sort of thing. The first five minutes of the real man shattered the image completely. Slowly, quietly, like snowflakes. Love these images. They stick in your mind. Like the small flakes that come when it's going to snow all night. Little flakes of me, my impressions, my selections, are settling down on my image of her. The real shape will be quite hidden in the end. Ten minutes, ten seconds of the real her would correct all this. Yet, even if those ten seconds were granted to me, one second later, the little flakes would begin to fall again. The rough, sharp, cleansing tang of her otherness is gone. What a pitiable thing to say, she will live forever in my memory. Live? That's exactly what she won't do there. Again, deep problem. How does he answer it? By not wallowing in his grief, but clear-headed, unsentimental thinking. My idea of God, he says, is not a divine idea. He's going to 
connect his idea of God with her. That idea must be shattered time after time. God shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? Of course. That's why I said if you say God spoke to me and, I, and, and you don't follow it with something like I was shattered in his presence, that's not the real God. The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by the iconoclasm. And blessed are those who are not. The same thing happens in our private prayers. All reality is iconoclastic. There are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in your philosophies. The earthly beloved, even in this life, incessantly triumphs over your mere idea of her. And you want her to. You want her with all her resistances, all her faults, all her unexpectedness. That is, if you're sane. You want her in her foursquare and independent reality. And now here's a solution. And this, not any image or memory, is what we are to love still after she is dead. Not my idea of God, but God. Not my idea of her, but her. Not my idea of my neighbor, but my neighbor. Don't we often make the same mistake regarding people who are still alive in the same room, talking and acting not to the person himself, but the picture we've made in our own minds? My reason for assuming that I must be doing this to other people is the fact that I so often find them doing it to me. We think we've got one another taped. Lewis would have hated the phrase, what I hear you saying is... <laughs> So the passion for honest objective truth, the desire to break out of this universal egotism, that's at least a first requirement for breaking out of it. Then he goes from himself to God. The first four problems, loneliness, the finality of death, the universality of grief, uh, the universality of egotism, these are all psychological problems. Now he goes into theological problems. And the most obvious is, where's God? Meanwhile, where is God? This is the most disquieting symptom of all. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. I tried to put some of these thoughts to C this afternoon. Don't know who that is, a friend. He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know, but does that make it easier to understand? Here is his answer. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer. But a very special kind of no answer. When I lay these questions before God, I do not get the locked door. I get something more like a silent 
and not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question, like, peace child, you don't understand. You see now how much I plagiarize C.S. Lewis. I didn't even know that line came from Lewis when I was talking about Job an hour ago. Well, Job's answer. And now that I've come to think of it, there's no practical problem before me at all. I know the two great commandments, and I'd better go on with doing them. What's left is not a problem about anything I could do. It's all about feelings and motives and that sort of thing. That's a problem I'm setting to myself. I don't believe God said that to me at all. Wonderfully honest. There's a practical answer to this theoretical problem. It's a little bit like Pascal's wager, which is not simply bet on God so that you don't go to hell. It's rather, if you can't see your way through to take the wager, then... He says, after the wager, in the really profound part, ask yourself why. If this is the most rational argument in the world, why can't you buy it? Well, there's something in you that holds you back. It's your passions. It's your heart. It's your feelings. It's your selfishness, not your reason. Well, then what do you do? Act. At some point or other, thinking has to stop because it's not going to get you out. In the Brothers Karamazov, there's a great scene where Father Zosima, uh, who is about to die, who's old and sick and in pain, hears the confession of Madame Holokov, who is a, a middle-aged lady who's overeducated and scatterbrained, and she's lost her faith, she's learned science, and that can explain everything. So she complains that uh, she's afraid of death now, and she's afraid that when she dies, there's nothing but flowers on her grave. How can I get my faith back? Prove to me that there's a God and an immortal soul. Father Zosima says, I can't do that. She says, then I'm doomed. I can never get my faith back. Oh, yes, you can. No, you don't understand. I can't go back to being a little girl, innocent, and with no questions. I got all these questions. And Father Zosman says, yes, I know, but there's another way. What's that? He says, love your neighbor with active and indefatigable love, as if he were the image of God. Treat your neighbor not like an evolved organism, but as an image of God. Then you'll see that it's true. If you do it, you'll see it. And she says, well, I, I, I thought of that. I could, I could join an order of contemplative nuns. I could give all my fortunes to charity. I could work for causes on the other side of the world. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that, he says. I'm sorry. That's love in dreams. I'm talking about love in action. And that is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. But if you do it, you'll see. Well, there's Lewis's answer. Obey the commandments. You'll see. Treat your neighbor as if he is God's child, and you'll see that he is. The heart opens the eyes of the mind. That's what Pascal says. The heart has its reasons. The heart's not sentiment. It's not feeling. The heart is the deeper part of reason. The heart has its reasons, which the reason does not know. But the heart is the thing that motivates you to act. So if you act, that will exercise the muscles of your heart, which will in turn open the muscles of your eye. Now, Lewis says that all in one line. So I put a lot of snow on his bell in explaining it. So many. All right, there's the absence of God. There's a deeper problem. This is number six. The character of God. Is he good? 
You'll notice that there's only one verse in the Bible that even raises the question of whether God exists. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Of course there's a God. The whole question is, what's he like? The Bible's divine revelation. Why did we need divine revelation? To know that there's a God? No. Nobody doubts that there's a God. Job never doubts that God exists. He doubts that God is good. It's obvious that God exists. Nature and conscience are, are very clear testimonies, but it's not obvious that God's good. Nature's immoral and full of blood and competition, and human history is too. And even our own conscience, although it tells us justice, doesn't tell us God is merciful. So that's a big revelation. That's news. That's good news. You can doubt it. You can easily doubt it. It doesn't look as if God is love, especially when something happens like this. So Lewis honestly enters into that doubt and confronts it. This takes a lot of courage. Lewis says that he didn't have much physical courage. He hated pain. He certainly has a lot of spiritual courage. <clears throat> Look at this passage. I don't think I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I fear is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language. What reason do we have, other than our own desperate wishes, to believe that God is good? Doesn't all the evidence suggest exactly the opposite? What do we have to set against it? And he goes right to the heart of the matter. We set Christ against it. And then he goes right to the heart of the matter there. But how if he were mistaken? Almost his last words on the cross may have a perfectly clear meaning. He had found that the being he called his father was horribly and infinitely different from what he had supposed. The trap, so long and carefully prepared and so subtly baited, was at last sprung on the cross. The vile practical joke had succeeded. Wow, the devil's interpretation of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How does he get out of that horrible doubt? And now again, a surprise. Reason, which was so weak in dealing with other questions, is very powerful in dealing with this. Look, his next entry. I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. Let me try it over again. Is it reasonable to believe in a bad God? A God as bad as that, the cosmic sadist. I think it is, if nothing else, much too anthropomorphic. When you come to think of it, it's far more anthropomorphic than picturing God as a grave old king with a long beard. That image is a Jungian archetype. It links God with all the wise kings in the fairy tales. But the picture I was building up last night is simply the picture of a sadist like S.C. Now, being like S.C., however magnified, could never invent or create or govern everything. He would try to set traps and bait them, but he could never have thought of baits like love or laughter or daffodils or a frosty sunset. He make a universe? He couldn't even make a joke. 
That's reasonable. Reason may not be able to be very powerful in building up the true picture, but it's very powerful in smashing to smithereens the false picture. It may not create steak, but it can identify baloney. <laughs> Especially when it's turned on yourself, which he does. Why should the thoughts I had a week ago be any more trustworthy than the better thoughts I have now? I am a saner and a soberer man now than I was then when he was yelling. Why should the desperate imaginings of a man who is dazed, almost like in a concussion, be especially reliable? Okay. But then he's honest enough to say the terrible thing, though, is that a perfectly good God is hardly less formidable than a cosmic sadist. Wonderful word. You have to say that in French. Formidable. The more we believe that God hurts us only to heal us, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. A sadist might be bribed. He might grow tired of his vile sport. He might have a temporary fit of mercy as alcoholics have fits of sobriety. But suppose what we are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. Then the kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, then all the pain up to that point would have been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture should be necessary for us. It certainly doesn't seem so. And now he comes again to a wonderfully rational point. Well, take your choice. The tortures happen. If they are unnecessary, then there is either no God or a very bad one. For if there is a good God, then these tortures are necessary. For not even a moderately good being could possibly permit them if they aren't. So either way, we're in for them. What do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to the dentist? <laughs> well, that's realism. Unfortunately, it's not a common realism in our age of comfort and pop psychology. Well, God is not doubtable, but faith is. And here is issue number seven. Uh, once he realizes that he can't doubt God and he's still got doubts, he realizes that he's doubting his faith and that that is eminently doubtable. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope is strong and sound as long as you're using it merely to tie a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. Apparently, my faith, I thought it was faith, that enabled me to pray for the dead seemed strong only because I've never really cared, not desperately, whether they existed or not. I only thought I did. 
He says somewhere, it's easy for us academics who live in our thought and imagination to believe that we believe something when we only imagine it. The case is too plain. If my house has collapsed at one blow, that's because it was a house of cards. The faith which took things like death into account was not faith, it was imagination. Taking them into account was not real sympathy. If I had really cared, as I thought I did, about the sorrows of the world, then I would have not been so overwhelmed when my own sorrow came. It has been an imaginary faith, playing with innocuous counters, poker chips, cold, death, and pain, and loneliness, and illness. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered to me whether it would bear me. Now it matters, and I find I didn't. You will not discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high, until you find you are playing not for counters or sixpence, but every penny in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, at any rate a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture can bring out the truth. Again, a very hard saying. But, there are two questions here. In which sense was my... In which sense was my faith a house of cards? Because the things I believe are only a dream, or because I only dream that I, dream that I believe them? Crucial distinction. We're not supposed to have faith in faith. We're supposed to have faith in God. Most of you have heard this famous analogy. It comes from Watchman Nee, I think. Faith, fact, and feeling are three men walking along a wall. Fact goes first. Faith goes second. Feeling goes third. As long as faith keeps his eye on fact, all three walk along the wall. Then faith turns his eye away from fact and looks behind him to see how well feeling is doing. And both faith and feeling fall off the wall. Only fact stays on. The object of our faith is not our feeling, our experience, or our faith. The object of our faith is the fact of God. The last problem is this seems too high for us. This demand that God makes. Uh, the passage I quoted before when his friend quoted the verse, do not mourn like those who have no hope. He says, those words are obviously addressed to our betters. And in a sense, he answers that because he agrees that it is too high for us. Just as the law is too high for us, and we have to know that we can't do it. The law is our schoolmaster, Christ. It's not Christ. It's not the Savior. So the fact that we don't have an answer, the fact that we realize that, like Oriwell, we are fools, and we have covered our face, that is precisely what God wants us to see. After he deals with these issues he gets something like an answer that's too good to be true. He just tells you a little bit about it. I said several weeks ago, several notebooks ago, that even if I got what seemed like an assurance of her presence now, I wouldn't believe it. 
He's you know, skeptical. He doesn't say, oh, I want to believe it, so I will. He's a very tough-minded. Apparently, he got it. He said, that's easier said than done. Even now, though, I won't treat anything of that sort as evidence. It's the quality of last night's experience, not what it proves, but what it was, that makes it worth putting down. And in talking to people about this kind of experience, I find that it's extremely common. Commoner even, I think, than the, the more famous out-of-body experience or near-death experience. The experience of the sudden, unmistakable presence of the beloved dead to the living at a certain particular time and place. Not usually visible, sometimes. Not usually audible, sometimes. But unmistakable. He said, it was quite incredibly unemotional. That's a surprise. Just the impression of her mind facing mine. Not like a rapturous reunion of lovers, but more like getting a telephone call about some practical arrangement. Not that there was any message, just intelligence and attention. Up till now, this always seemed to me an arid and chilling idea. The absence of emotion repelled me. But this contact, whether it was real or apparent, apparently didn't need emotion. The intimacy was complete without it. Could that intimacy be the heart of love itself? Which in this life is always attended with emotion, not because love is itself an emotion, but because our animal souls, our nervous systems, and our imaginations have to clothe it in those ways. Hmm. When I say her intellect faced me, I include her will. Attention is an act of will. What met me was full of resolution. Didn't the theologians dispute once whether the final beatific vision of God was more an act of the intelligence or of the will and love? I think that is probably a nonsense question. But it remains that this life of faith and love and in the middle of is high and holy and hard. And he says to God with wonderful honesty, sometimes, Lord, one is tempted to say that if you wanted us to behave like the lilies of the field, you might have given us an, a bodily organization more like theirs. But that, I suppose, is just your grand experiment. No, not your experiment. You have no need to find things out. Rather, your grand enterprise to make an organism which is also a spirit. To make that terrible oxymoron a spiritual animal. To take a poor primate, a beast with nerve endings all over it, a creature with a stomach that wants to be filled, a breeding animal that wants its mate, and say, now get on with it, become a god. And what does Lewis do to that? He gets on with it. And so must we. Good, I've given myself the hook 15 minutes early. We've got time for some questions. If you're afraid of this sort of thing, this total simple honesty, don't read this book. It's a broom. 
I think Mother Teresa would have loved this book. One of my favorite sayings of Mother Teresa is she went to this theologians conference. It lasted all day. She heard four or five papers. She was very patient. They asked her what she thought of them. Uh, weren't they very eloquent? Uh, she said they said too much, too many words. But, but Mother, they're, they're theologians. Uh, what else could they say besides words? Well, she said, if one of them had picked up that broom and started sweeping this dirty floor, that would have said more. <laughs> right on, Mother. Dr. Crave, uh, the old hymn. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. We believe in the communion of the saints. Was that an example? I hope you do. I hope you do. I read... Now, this is not polemical, uh, although it may seem so. I read an autobiography by... I know he was a Presbyterian because his father was a Presbyterian preacher. And his father died. And he was like eight or ten years old. Was it Peter Marshall? Anyway... Uh, he says, I remember that that night I prayed for my father, as I had done every night of my life. And my mother said to me, you must not do that, son. We are not Catholics. And I felt as if uh, an iron bar had come down upon my world. And it was worse than my father's death itself. The communion of saints, of course, is in the Apostles' Creed. It's not just a Catholic doctrine. So whatever the connections between the dead and the living are, they're very deep and very, very intimate. Having spent 30 years in education, I frequently find help in comparing our life to a classroom. And I think of the students to whom no tests are ever given and remember that those are the retarded, the disadvantaged, who must be helped and coddled. And those to whom the hardest tests are given are those in the gifted and talented, the advanced placement. I wonder sometimes if death is a graduation from the or just a promotion to another level. Um, I'm afraid I'm confused. And, oh, you're, you're, it is both. And I marvel at the divine mercy that not only allows us to pray, but commands us to pray to be put into the retarded class so that we don't get much pain. In the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into the trial. God doesn't tempt us to sin, but God gives us hard tests. And we're commanded to say, I'm such a weak sister, I couldn't handle the hard class. Please put me in the easy one. Sometimes he says, no, I won't, I'll put you in the hard class. But we, we're, we're warned against wanting to go into the hard class. That's rather arrogant. So we, we, must, we must flee suffering. It's not wrong to, to flee suffering. But then when God says, you can go in the hard class, at the same time as something in us, if it's honest and human, hate faith, faith says, Okay, just says yes. We're not supposed to like it, We're supposed to do it. As Lewis says, I know the commandments, I better get on with them. The rest of the problems is all my feelings. And the best therapist in the world, he can deal with feelings, but he can't go deeper than that. 
He can take away your guilt feelings. He can't take away your guilt. You know the only one who can do that. More questions? You're quiet, and that's profound. I'm interested still in this issue of the connection between the living and the dead. And it, it, your comments on the communion of the saints makes me think of this notion of being in Christ. We usually think of that in terms of being in Christ with those around us on earth. What would you say about how we are in Christ with those who have died? Somebody said, if we knew what the New Testament meant every time it used the word in, we would have no problems at all left. We'd know all the mysteries. Christ is fully present on earth. The same Christ. So we, insofar as we are in him, are also present in the heavenlies and present on earth. Now, there's different kinds of presence. Christ's resurrection body is not present on earth. That ascended to heaven. Christ's mystical body is present on earth. That's the body in which we are. If I kill that chair, that's not killing a human being. But if I kill your body, I'm, I'm attacking a human soul. I can't kill your soul, but I can kill you. Because that's where your, your soul is, in your body. And yet our souls, unlike our bodies, are already in heaven. Because your soul is wherever you love. Whatever you identify with. That's what you find your identity in. And if you find your identity in heaven, then you're already in heaven. Although not bodily. So this whole presence and in is... is, is When we get to heaven, and if we remember this time and place and this day, we'll have a good laugh about it. We'll say, you know, we were wondering whether it could be really true, as C.S. Lewis suggests, that we're in heaven already. What fools we were. We didn't see it. Of course we were.